You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Now, we're working through the creed, and I should have seen this coming, but honestly, I didn't. I got a problem with my sermon tonight. Because the whole framework for the series is called The Apprentice, and it's about being a disciple of Jesus. And what we're saying is to be a disciple is to follow Jesus wherever he goes to learn to do whatever he does. And we've been working through the phrases of the creed and asking ourselves, what does that look like? What does that look like? What does that look like? And now we come to a phrase in the creed that says, he descended into hell. And I'm thinking, wait a second. If a disciple is somebody who goes where Jesus goes and he descended into hell, then I've got a problem on my hands. Because i got to come to church on Sunday and look out at you and tell you all to go to hell. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, I don't think I'm that kind of a preacher, you know. And, but it wouldn't make sense anyway. Jesus is giving his life to get us out of hell. Why, why would he ever turn around and send us I- into hell, right? But then I thought about where this series began. And if you're listening online or if you're following the whole series uh, here, you would remember that we began in the upper room on Easter Sunday. Jesus, with his disciples, after he's risen from the dead, has two words to speak to them. And the first word is easy to receive. He says, peace. And that's a great word, isn't it? That that refers to the, the Hebrew concept of shalom of wholeness and restoration peace. In that, in that hour of darkness, that's what they needed to hear, peace. But then Jesus has another word for them. Then Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And this is a challenge to mission. And I'm not so sure that word was as welcome by the disciples in that moment. You know, you could just imagine Bartholomew looking over at Thaddeus and saying, what's he, what's he saying? And Thaddeus says, well, he's saying that we're supposed to go where he goes. And Bartholomew goes, well, where's he been for the last three days? Right? And they're looking at the cuts in his hands and the slice in his side. And they're going, I'm not sure I know where this guy's been. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, though, that I don't want to go there. Where has he been? Well, I'm not sure they could have said at that moment, but you said it before. He was crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell. So I got to tell you that I'm, I've come with a message for you tonight. And, you know, like it, the, all the preaching coaches tell you, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And my message is really simple. Go to hell. But I'm going to tell you what that means. And I'm also going to tell you that it might just be your greatest privilege in life. So would you open up your Bibles with me? Open up, please, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. You're going to find that on page 956 of the Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. little paragraph there. If you're able, would you stand? Let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, as I always do, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. 
He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. What I want to discuss with you in these next few moments is what I would call a disciple's spiritual power. A disciple's spiritual power. This passage that you just read is all about Jesus Christ. He's supreme. But there are two things by implication that are also true of you. And I want you to hear these tonight. And the first one is this. Two things. The first one is this. Hell has no claim on you. That's why it's safe for you to go there. Hell has no claim on you. Did you notice verse 20? Here the Apostle Paul makes the case that Jesus Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. There's peace between you and God. Peace. Now, where is that peace? It's located, we see in verse 16, where it is most needed in the centers of power within the universe. He calls these thrones or dominions, rulers or powers. Wherever there is power collected in the universe, Jesus Christ is making peace through his blood. He's reconciling all of these things to God. And he's begun with you. Hell has no claim on your life. Why? Because Jesus Christ descended into hell. Now let me just take a minute and talk to you about that phrase. Have you ever wondered, what in the world am I saying when you say the Apostles' Creed and you get to that part? Well, first thing I want to say is that phrase isn't in the Bible anywhere. The Bible never actually says that Jesus descended into hell. It doesn't. That phrase took on several meanings, three in particular that I want to share with you tonight over the course of church history. At the beginning, when that phrase started to show up in the proto-creed that became the Apostles' Creed, it was just understood to mean Jesus really died. He descended into Hades, the text said at that time. And if, if you know your Old Testament, you know that sometimes the place of, of death or the grave is, was referred to as Sheol. And Hades was the Greek equivalent of Sheol. So it, it, it didn't mean he went into a place of torment. Uh, they, they understood it just meant he really died. In fact, some places the creed had the phrase he descended into Hades. Other areas, regions had the phrase he was buried. And see, they were considered alternatives, but when the traditions merged together, they just they didn't want to lose anything, so they kept, he was buried, he descended into Hades. But this led to the second phase of interpretation, which was sort of an opportunity for the theologians of the medieval period. And they looked at that phrase, and they said, I see something even more beautiful than just that Jesus actually died. I see that Jesus had a mission. He had a rescue operation. And they begin to talk about what they called the harrowing of hell. Have you ever heard of that? The harrowing of hell. Now, what is a harrow? I had to look this up. 
not kid you not. Uh, what is a harrow? It's an agricultural term, and it's a, a kind of a plow that has spikes like fork, and it's dragged through hard soil to crack it and break it up. That's a harrow. What they meant by the harrowing of hell was Jesus sort of like a superhero charges. He storms into hell to release all of its captives there. See, Jesus has his rescue operation. He goes to hell in order to empty hell. And that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful understanding of that phrase, he descended into hell. But then there's a third interpretation, and this one comes about around the time of the Reformation, principally with a man named John Calvin. And John Calvin, he, he, he doesn't want to offer a dissenting opinion. I don't think, Calvin says, Jesus actually went on a, a, a trip between Friday when he was crucified and Sunday when he was resurrected. Don't think he went anywhere, actually. And I think, in fact, that when he descended into hell, he did so on Friday on the cross itself. Calvin's idea that to say that Jesus descended into hell meant that the judgment you deserve is past. That the wrath of God is absorbed by God on the cross. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaken, forsaking me? He experiences in that moment the, the, the crisis that anyone would experience who has been abandoned by God. And that's what hell is. And so you see, God, the Son of God, on the cross, stands in this place of punishment for us. And so he does rescue us from hell and free us from its claim. That's why I say, hell has no claim on you. Now, what does this mean for you? Thought experiment. Hypothetical question. Imagine there was such a thing as a metaphysical visa. Okay, I don't think there is. But imagine there is, and you could go on a metaphysical vacation. Let's say you could go on a, um, a study tour to hell for a short period of time, right? Some of you scholars feel like you've already been on that trip, but for the rest of us, we haven't. And... Um, my question for you is, if you could go on a study tour to hell, do you think once you got there you'd be trapped or that you could leave at will? I think you could come and go as you pleased. Why do I say that? Here's something interesting. In the Bible, the powers of darkness, uh, when they are personified, are named uh, Satan. And Satan is a personal name. It's a Hebrew word, and it means, you know what it means? Accuser. Satan means accuser. So that is Satan's ministry. That's what he was doing in the Garden of Eden. He first was accusing God, saying he didn't give you what you need. He's holding back from you. And then once Adam and Eve rebel, he says he accuses them before God. Accusation is the power that Satan has to put people in hell and to keep people in hell. Now, I want to show you something. Open your Bibles back up to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, look here at verses 13 and 14 and see what happened. Look where, well, look where Paul goes with this. He, he writes in verse 13 of chapter 2, And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God knows all about your past, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. And then he goes on. He says, verse 14, Erasing the record erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He, that's God, set this record aside, nailing it to the cross. And when he did so, 
he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he goes on. So what is he saying? He's saying it's as though there's kind of a rap sheet on your life. Everything you've ever done wrong, everything you ever will do wrong, it's, it's like it's all listed out there. It's this whole list of, of all of my sins on this rap sheet. And what Paul is saying, do you know what God has done? When Jesus was nailed to the cross, really what God was doing is he's taking your rap sheet and he was nailing it to the cross. And he erased it when Jesus died. The certificate of debt, the record against you, has been erased. So that there isn't anything that you have ever done or ever will do for which Jesus Christ hasn't died. You know what that means? No one can accuse you of anything. There is no accusation left for you. If you have faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is good news. That's why I say if you would ever somehow show up in hell, you could just leave whenever you wanted to leave. Hell has no claim on you. So, what I'm trying to say is that Jesus went to hell so you don't have to. But you could if you wanted to. Okay, that's the first point. Now the second point, why you might actually want to. Second point is this, you have a mission in hell. You have a mission in hell. Before I explain that to you, let me give you a picture of what that looks like in one person's life. This month I read a magazine article and the headline caught my eye. It was titled, Hope for Women in Hell. And that caught my eye. What does that mean? Hope for women in hell. And it turns out the article is about a woman who had uh, lived very much in a personal hell. She had been abused and she ended up in the sex industry. Her name is Annie Donawald. And Jesus rescued her. Jesus rescued Annie from the sex industry. But as soon as he did, I mean, as soon as he did, she turned right back around and went back to hell, back to the sex industry. But this time, not to be rescued, but to participate in the rescue operation. And so she's founded this ministry, and I love the name of it. It's called Eve's Angels. And it's been very effective. It's been, I think it's about four or five years old. And over those years... Uh, quite a few people have been rescued. And so this uh, a reporter is asking her, how do you do it? And here's what she said. Listen to this. Three words. Catch this. We go inside. We go inside. She means inside the bars, inside the clubs. She said, we are the ministry that goes inside. It's not enough to drop off gift bags outside. Or sit outside and pray. It's important to go inside. She told the reporter, we need to keep in mind how staying outside comes across to the girls. That they must be avoided. She says, they don't need our judgment. To these girls, the attitude is, I'm already in hell. Why are you telling me I'm going to hell? She says, we shouldn't be afraid to go inside to see these women as daughters and sisters. Because, and then she quotes the Bible... Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. She knows she has a mission in hell. And the Apostle Paul knows that same thing. That's why in the passage you just read, he makes it very clear that this peace isn't just for you. That this peace is for all of creation, all of heaven, all of earth. 
The word all is used eight times in this passage. It's actually thought to be a hymn or a song that Paul is incorporating into his letter. And there are two parts to it. If you look at it again, you'll see the first section is verses 15 through 17. You could just draw a line there under verse 17 over 18. The second part is verse 18 through 20. And the first part of the song is about the supremacy of Jesus over all of creation. And the second part of the song is about the supremacy of Jesus over all of restoration. He is reconciling all things to God. He's making peace through the blood of his cross. He's going to the centers of power wherever that accusations of Satan have a residual power where fear is dominant, basically. Jesus is reconciling thrones, dominions, rulers, or powers anywhere. Jesus, he is disarmed by the cross, and he's reconciling. This is his rescue operation in all of creation. So what does this have to do with you who wants to be an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus? Well, look again at verse 18. This is very interesting. Here's where we see this passage historically associated with this part of the creed. Verse 18, it says, Jesus is the beginning, right there in the middle of the verse, the firstborn from the dead. In the original language, which is Greek, it says, ek ton nekron. Ek is the Greek word for out of. And ton nekron means the dead ones. So the picture isn't so much of death as a state. It's death as huddled masses of people in some gray netherworld. Jesus is the firstborn out from among the dead ones. So you almost do get this picture of our rescuer storming into hell and then bursting forth the firstborn of many brothers and sisters pulling us with him, behind him, into eternal life. And notice this, Paul says in that same verse, Jesus is the head of the body. And friends, where the head goes, the body will go. I mean, if your head ever went somewhere that your body didn't go, you'd have a health problem, wouldn't you? And if Jesus, the head, goes somewhere that the body doesn't follow, the church of Jesus Christ would have a health problem. And Jesus goes to hell because he has a rescue mission. And Paul knows where Jesus goes, you and I get to go also. This is the mission word that Jesus spoke. As soon as he was risen from the dead, he wanted them to know, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. What a privilege. Now, when I was a new believer, I didn't understand anything about this. But I was invited to a Bible study at the gates of hell. It's true, true story. Um, do you know where the gates of hell are, by the way? Stanford University. And then many of you have suspected that all along. Palo Alto, California, the gates of hell are right there. I can you not. It's, it's actually a sculpture by Rodin. Uh, there are several copies of it, and one of them is in bronze. It's outside in a courtyard, Rodin's gates of hell. And I was invited to, to join a Bible study that was meeting there. This was interesting because these are a bunch of young adults, actually. Who invited, I was in high school. I don't know to this day why these young adults took an interest in me, a high school kid. Uh, But I think now it's really cool. It's what we call sticky faith, where older and younger people build relationship with one another, and it's good for all of us. And they were doing that. 
And I sat there in this small group, and I don't remember anything that they said that day. But I will never forget where we were. I will never forget. Because these, these were graduate students, mostly in engineering. And it was clear to me that they had a sense they were on a mission. And that even their studies, and that even somehow the profession of engineering could... Uh, allow them to participate in the reconciling work of Jesus. He's not just stealing souls for heaven. He's renewing all of creation, and they wanted in, and hell itself would not get in their way. And I just thought, my goodness, if I read this book, it will introduce me to the one who is its subject. And that one will invite me to follow him, and I I will have a mission for the rest of my life. And the gates of hell won't prevent me. It was, a, it was a powerful experience. Now, a lot of people would love to be here tonight and stand in front of you and tell the church to go to hell, right? And we know, we, we know these people. We're, they're our relatives and friends and neighbors. They'd love to be able to say to us, just go to hell. The whole thing stinks. And you know what? I think the reason why the world wants to tell the church in many instances to go to hell is because, frankly, that we haven't done it so well. We haven't. We haven't always gone inside of other people's hells. We have stood on the outside and folded our arms and just sat there with a bunch of accusations. But I'm here to remind you tonight that accusation is not your ministry. That's not the ministry of Jesus. That belongs to the other guy. You're on a different team. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what the apprenticeship is all about. Jesus takes three years with his disciples to disabuse them of this idea. When they started out, Jesus just kept going. He took good people and he took them into bad places. And everybody's going, oh my gosh, where's this guy going? What, what, did he, what is this? Jesus would sit at the feet of prostitutes and adulterers. Jesus would go to parties with tax collectors. He'd eat with them. Jesus would hang out with the poor and the sick and the crippled and the lost and they couldn't understand it but this is what Jesus is all about he didn't take his disciples and and build a bible college with him nor did he tell them how to make the best synagogue that's ever been made right we think that's Jesus's project to make the church as good as it could possibly be he showed no interest in those projects no And notice what he did when he got into other people's hell. What did he do? He touched them. Again and again, he's touching people that he should not be touching. By the way, in Colossae here, they don't want to touch either. And if you look at verse 21 of chapter 2, you'll see they're they're running around saying, Oh, don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. Well, a good person could become bad by getting too close to something bad. So don't touch it because you could become unclean. You could be defiled by that. And I love Jesus. One day there was a woman with a hemorrhage. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. What does Jesus do? Touches her. Uh, One day there was a leper who comes and kneels before him. What does Jesus do? Touches him. One day he's walking uh, outside of the town called Nain. And there's a widow who's broken heart at a pathetic funeral procession. And her only son is on a stretcher. What does Jesus do? He walks up and he touches Funny thing about Jesus, instead of him becoming unclean when he touches, uh, that person or that one he touches becomes clean. It's like the reverse, like a reverse charge, the grand reversal. 
And you know what? That's real spiritual power. So the woman with the hemorrhage becomes, she's healed. And the leper becomes clean. And the young man who is dead comes back to life. That's real spiritual power. Friends, that's your power as well. And what would it look like if every single one of us lived that way? Just imagine if instead of trying to get others in here, in this room, we try to get ourselves out there. Instead of trying to keep the world from touching us, we worked hard to touch the world. Instead of trying to hide in small groups for refuge, we tried to deploy our small groups in mission. Instead of trying to get into our heaven, we worked so much harder to try to get into others' hell. I have to say this. Frankly, I love the way you all, this congregation, is so committed to understanding our sexuality only in terms of of the Bible, in marriage too. I love that, and I'm committed to that. But I, but, but I also have to say that I'm really uneasy with our impulse to try to pull away from people that don't agree with us on that matter. That worries me. I don't think that's Jesus' way. And we look at our denomination sometimes and we go, oh, we better withdraw. Really? Let me say this. You will never change a relationship you're not in. You cannot change a relationship you're not in. Jesus' way is to go inside, to build a relationship, to move toward people, not to pull back from people. And that's the great thing about UPC. You've been doing that for a hundred years. Let's not stop now. If you ask, uh, listen, C.T. Studd, the great missionary, he said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. If you want to know what that looks like in your life, think of this. It looks like the student who doesn't care about drinking alcohol so much, but who rushes a fraternity because they want the privilege of sitting on a sticky beer-stained floor, putting their arms around their brother all night long to keep him safe. It looks like uh, somebody who's a scientist who'd rather just be doing pure science but ends up allowing himself to be elevated in a big pharmaceutical company because he cannot stand the profit structure and he hopes by being present there he would have a shot at maybe changing that. What does it look like? It looks like a family that would invite two lesbians into their home because their business went bankrupt and they just want to care for them. What does it look like? It looks like a neighbor who rides a bus to the hospital to sit in a chemo center while toxic chemicals are being downloaded into their body. More questions than answers, but just to be present with them. What does it look like? It looks like a grandfather who's, who goes on the seventh grade field trip with his granddaughter. Right? We all have our idea of what hell would be. <laughs> it looks like a teenager who has um, a withdrawn and sometimes hurtful father but who continues to listen and to communicate with him. It looks like a nurse practitioner who would spend 48 hours at a training seminar just to learn how to don and doff a hazmat suit for Ebola patients. This is what's happening in our midst. Let me tell you one final story before I let you go. And this is, this is real. It's real time. It's happening in our congregation. It's about a man I want to call a Bill. It's not his real name. But uh, Bill has been living with his girlfriend for 14 years. And his family are here at UPC. He's in another state. 
And they don't like this. They'd love for him to get married. But they don't, he just, Bill doesn't care so much about their religion, and he, doesn't, he cares even less about their advice. And so there he is, and they don't know what to do about it. Well, it turns out Bill's a musician. And fairly recently, Bill was, uh, received the honor of being invited into an artist colony. It was quite a, a, an opportunity, actually, a real a reward for his hard work as a musician. But while he was there, he found himself, much to his own su- surprise, sexually involved with another artist there, a dancer. When he got back home with his partner, he tried to hide and cover the whole thing up, but it was hard to do because she had become pregnant. And when his partner found out about this, she kicked him out of the house and he lost everything. His partner decided to have the child and to take his daughter to another country, her home. At this point, he was in his own personal hell. This was bottom. And Bill writes this, I was completely shattered and broken. Suicidal thoughts flooded back again and again. This was a blackness that I had never experienced before, a void that existentialists find themselves screaming into, the absence of God. But that's just when some followers of Jesus began to come inside to join Bill in his pain. First his sister, then his parents, his friends, and even strangers came alongside of Bill. And so Bill would write, There's little doubt in my mind who was responsible for those people entering my life. This was divine providence. Isn't that interesting? An unbeliever. This is divine providence. This was God's grace. The reality of this has brought me to tears countless times, even now as I write this. Thankfully, Bill found a church that he describes as nothing but compassion. And he describes himself now as the guy who's on the soundboard in the back, listening with tears of joy streaming down his cheeks during worship. Here's what he says. I committed a grievous sin, and there's no hiding from that. But what is also true is, but what is also true is that I am forgiven. And I couldn't be more grateful for that. You know what you can do tonight, friends? You can do that. That's real spiritual power. That's a mission worthy of your life. You have spiritual power to touch a life in hell and to bring the transforming grace of Jesus Christ in a way that really matters. You know, Jesus told his followers, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. And you know what he didn't mean? He didn't mean that the church would one day be walking down the street and a bunch of gates would come up from behind and ambush them. Uh, Last I checked, gates don't actually attack people. What did he mean? He meant that one day his followers would get up out of their pews, would rise up and storm the very bowels of hell itself to release the captives, to empty hell. He knew that you and I would one day go inside. All right, well, I've told you I would tell you what I was going to tell you, and then I would tell you, and then I would tell you what I told you. So it's time for me to tell you. Are you ready? You want to say it with me? One, two, three. 
go to hell. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. It's so rich in our lives. We pray now, asking that your Holy Spirit would bring to our minds, every one of us, bring to our minds somebody. Because there's somebody tonight that needs us. And they need us because they need you. And so we pray that you'd bring to mind a person, that you'd bring to mind a school, that you'd bring to mind a hospital, that you'd bring to mind a neighborhood, maybe even bring to mind a country. Because you've sent us, and we have a mission. Empower us for it. And may it be for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.